0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Judge Mwilthapar serves as a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, where he has served since 2017. A graduate of the University of California's School of Law there at Berkeley, Judge Thapar was previously a judge on the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Kentucky. He also served as United States Attorney for Eastern Kentucky. Judge Thapar has written numerous scholarly articles for journals such as the Yale Law Journal, Michigan Law Review, and the Catholic University Law Review. He's taught courses on originalism, federalism, and constitutional law at law schools such as that at Notre Dame University, the University of Virginia, and Vanderbilt University. But it is his book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories that Define Him, that is the topic of our conversation today. Honorable Judge Amul Thapar, welcome to Thinking in Public. Your Honor, it's a little unusual for a uh, sitting federal judge uh, to write a book about another judge, in this case, Justice Clarence Thomas of the United States Supreme Court. So uh, why did you do this and, and why now?
1: Yeah. When Justice Scalia sadly passed too early, he told us most of judges, lawyers, other thoughtful people that we have a responsibility to fly the flag of originalism was what he said, because they weren't going to do it necessarily in the academies or elsewhere. And so what he always said is he took originalism to lawyers and when he started doing it, he would walk in and announce he was an originalist and everyone would run out like he was a bear. Well, I he changed that. Now, when I go talk to lawyers about originalism, it's thoughtful, it's engaging. But what I found is that lay people don't understand originalism in the same way. And so what I did, the first version of the book, the book I'm most proud of is called Originalism for Lay People. Um, I wrote about 60 pages of it. I spent over 100 hours working on it. I thought it was the best thing I had ever written. And then I gave it to my wife and (laughs) she read about four pages and she said, who's going to read this and looked at me like this isn't going to work. And so I was back to the drawing board. But during that process, I realized what Justice Scalia had said before was true, that there was one true, pure originalist on the court. And that was Clarence Thomas. And so if I wanted to show the American people what an originalist America would look like, I had to study his decisions. And when I did that, what I found surprised me so much so that I thought it would be a fascinating book, but not in the way I originally envisioned, rather one that I envision lay people like my wife and kids and others would like.
0: Well, I found the book surprising. And uh, we've had a lot of conversations on this program about constitutionalism, uh, how to read a text. Uh, I am a committed originalist and uh, proud to hold the Edmund Mies Award for originalism in law That's and, and theology. So I, I, I appreciate that. And there's some great uh, definitional issues for us to discuss as we go forward. But I'm in a wholehearted agreement that if we're looking to the court, particularly now, and we're looking for an originalist, uh, Clarence Thomas is the man. Uh, but there's a lot being said and written about Clarence Thomas. You make a rather astounding counter-cultural, uh, uh, even counter-expectation claim in this book. And that is that originalism is actually a, uh, not only the right way to read the Constitution, but it empowers the weak uh, rather than the strong.
1: Yeah, and I think that comes from the founder's original design. If you remember, the anti-federalists were very worried about a big and encroaching federal government that would not only encroach on our rights, our religion, our conscience. And so the anti-federalists insisted on things like the Bill of Rights that were counter-majoritarian and meant to protect the weak and those who didn't have the ability to protect themselves off it and so it makes sense when you think of how the constitution was originally designed for a small and limited federal government and a more robust protection of our rights uh that originalism would reflect that but we do such a poor job of explaining that. And I think that's what I hope this book accomplishes is it says to the American people, wait a minute, all the criticisms you hear of originalism favoring the rich over the poor, the strong over the weak, the government over the individual, they just aren't true. And the cases themselves prove it. I don't try to prove it through theory as I did in the original book, by the way but I try to do it through the stories of the cases, which I think is what's so compelling when people who don't agree with originalism read the book, let alone people who agree with originalism and find reading the book very surprising.
0: Well, I found it surprising in how you made the argument. And I I, I think uh, uh, very effective by the way, Uh, because I think uh, that the kind of liberal response to originalism is, Well, that's great for the powerful, but not for the powerless. But you're making the exact uh, contradictory argument to that, saying that uh, it's the powerless who really depend upon the actual text, the words, the grammar, uh, even the punctuation uh, of the Constitution. And uh, you really do make that that case very clearly. Yeah, and I think what's important is Justice Thomas never
1: forgets, and it's a good lesson for me and other judges, that there's real people involved in every case. As you think about the courts, in the trial court, we see the real people, so we don't forget that. But as they go up, even for the public, cases become captions. They don't become, they lose sight of who the real people are that are impacted. And so what happens is the critics of originalism paint them in a different way. They paint the government as protecting the people. But if you think about how the original design worked, it was we agreed to a limited federal government. Our rights did. There's two different views. Do our rights come from government? That's what the critics of originalism think. And then those that support originalism understand what the founders understood, that our rights come from God. And there are God-given rights. And what we agreed to is have some of our liberty encroached, a very limited amount, in exchange to have an effective federal government.
0: You know, this is uh, uh, not where I intended to go, but you raised such a good issue there. I want to take a moment and and press on that argument. So uh, the the founders clearly made reference to natural rights. and uh, and natural rights, and uh, made very clear that these are indeed endowed by the creator. Um, Where exactly do uh, modern progressive think that uh, rights come from? Where where are rights grounded? And and are they even real? I don't know.
1: It's hard for me to say. I think what the critics really think is that they're negotiated amongst the people and created by government. Positive law. Positive law. And what I think most people understand, I mean, C.S. Lewis talks about this, right? The moral law and understanding our our own understanding of what's good and bad. You know it from the time you're five. So if it comes from some kind of positive law, it's shocking to me because my kids, when they were young, knew taking from their brother or sister wasn't a good thing. And I didn't have to tell them that. Right. right, there's something inherent in us.
0: A toddler and, hides after misbehaving when he hasn't even been told not to do that. Right, it's a natural right. knowledge.
1: Yes, and so I think it's really interesting to think of it as coming from somewhere else. But the the important thing for judges isn't where it comes from; it's that the founders, what the founders understood, and what the document did, and the document reflects that if you look at the document the way it's designed the way it's written the declaration of independence that comes before it and as originalists it's important we take account of history and what came before it to understand what's actually in it
0: well you know you say that that makes perfect sense but uh, every part of what you just said uh opposed by many who uh, would argue that number one and, and this has been very popular in the, or common in legal circles since the early 20th century, and that is the Declaration of Independence has no textual relationship to the U.S. Constitution. And, and then that uh, rights are real, but they're not real until they are positively stated, uh, put in the form of some kind of constitution or in, uh, or in even a judicial uh, declaration uh, by a court. And so all I'm saying is, look, the, the, this is where the left thinks that there is no end to rights. We just haven't declared in terms of positive law, new rights that uh, nonetheless should be declared. And uh, so you take the abortion uh, logic of, say, Roe v. Wade in 1973, you go back to Bostock and, you know, all, all the rest. I mean, the idea of a living constitution is more alive, I think, in many Americans than conservatives would like to think.
1: Well, I think there's really originalism and then it's critics. And one of the groups of critics is living constitutionalism. And yes, uh, it is alive. There's no doubt it's alive. The debate is fascinating for many that pay attention to it in that um, what originalism is in many ways and the criticism of originalism from both sides that is fair is it's restrictive in some ways, right? We are restricted to the document itself. That's right. And living constitutionalism can actually, as they say, adapt to the times. Now, I would argue Justice Scalia, to adopt an argument of Justice Scalia's, he said at the end of the day, it's who do you trust? Do you trust the American people um, or do you trust the nine individuals in the court? And he said, I'd rather with the pressing issues of today, I'd rather pick nine individuals randomly from the phone book. Then have the nine individuals in the court play God, in essence. Yeah. and channeling their William
0: F. Buckley Jr. I'm sorry, he was channeling their William F. Buckley Jr. in the yes. uh, the New York uh, mayoral race when he made that claim.
1: Yes, yeah, and that is exactly what he was doing. And and I think Justice Scalia captured something there. In you know, Justice Scalia always had a great sense of humor, yeah. but he he captured something there about who do you trust? If you trust the nine people in the building with all of your rights, then by all means, you should be a living constitutionalist. If you would better trust yourself and your neighbors and others, then you should be an originalist.
0: Now, let's press on definitions there for a moment uh, before we get to the approach you take in your book in terms of looking at specific cases and the stories behind them. You are using the word originalism, and I know what you mean by that. But I want to ask you to define originalism. Um, Just give us a concise definition and we can move forward.
1: Yeah. So I describe it in the book, but I think what so there's many brands and I don't we can get into it, but it's a much more theoretical. Again, the one my wife said no one would really like. But um, I and Justice Thomas and others are original public meaning originalists. And what that means is we look at the words in the document. We try to understand through history, through what happened around the time, what those words meant when they were ratified by the American people. I always think the originalism, it's not a perfect analogy, but as a contract, I explained it, in fact, to my neighbor when I was nominated to the Sixth Circuit. I was a district judge at the time and I was nominated to the Sixth Circuit and the media ran articles saying I was an originalist. And my neighbor, who's a good friend of mine, came running down and he said, I can't believe you're one of those. And I said, one of what? And he said, you're an originalist. And I I said, Mike, uh, you're a businessman. And I said, you, you sign contracts all the time, right? And when you sign those contracts, you and your neighbor, you and your, the person you signed the contract with have a meeting of the minds. Do you want me to interpret, try to figure out if you guys have a disagreement, what the meeting of the minds was as reflected in the words of the document? Or do you want me to tell you what I think's best for you? And he said, oh, of course, you shouldn't do the latter. You should do the former. You should interpret it right. as we understood it at the time. And I said, Mike, you two are an originalist now. And he went running back up to his house like I was a bear. And I understood Justice Scalia's complaint yeah. at the time. Yeah. But it's really trying to capture the meaning of the words at the time the document was ratified.
0: So you're going to speak of originalism and you're going to include what Justice Scalia would call textualism. And uh, what uh, in law schools before was described as strict constructionism, that's all within your umbrella of uh, original and and in terms, especially of the public, original public understanding of the words as written. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. Because in one sense, and I think you, you, as you narrated this yourself, in one sense, Justice Scalia uh, looked to Justice Thomas as the most consistent uh, originalist.
1: Yeah, he he used to jokingly refer to Justice Thomas as one of the most consistent and would say, you know, I'm not Clarence, he's crazy, he'll go back to the original meaning for everything, whereas Justice Scalia had a different view of that. But to be fair to Justice Scalia, I think that's an unfair criticism of himself in many ways.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, very different personalities, uh, because, uh, you know, Justice Scalia uh, was so active in the oral argument phase of uh, of the court process, and Justice Thomas less so. So I think a lot of citizens who pay attention to the court, uh, if you listen to the oral arguments, you actually know a whole lot more about what Justice Scalia thinks about uh, these issues, or the questions he would ask, than Justice Thomas.
1: I think that's right. I think Justice Thomas's writings are very powerful, which is why a book involved with his writings as well as the stories of the cases turned out to be so powerful. But I think the reality is, is Justice Scalia, both on the bench and in the academies, was often the perfect evangelist for originalism.
0: Right. Well, he certainly has many disciples, and I say that with great appreciation. Uh, recently had uh, one of these conversations uh, about the uh, thought and legacy of uh, Justice Scalia. Uh the, the book, and by the way, I think your your wife was onto something uh, something Ronald Reagan would understand uh, you know, when he made very clear that uh, the effective way to convey many of the deepest and most convictional issues is by means of a story. and and that's what you do. You tell the real life story of individuals uh, who found themselves before the United States Supreme Court and the issues that were at stake and uh, you really do make your argument, I think very effectively, that uh, particularly with these cases in mind, uh, originalism is the friend of the American citizen. Uh, So tell me, how did you decide on these particular cases? So uh, the one thing I recognized as a judge, and especially a court of appeals judge,
1: is your only true views come through in your own writings so i can't pick a majority that justice thomas wrote because there's give and take when you write a majority especially for five or six or seven justices or even nine you have to reach consensus it, that means on every word on every concept on everything but when justice thomas wrote for himself and then others may join from time to time but often they were alone Uh, you knew it reflected his true views. And what I was trying to show the reader is what does an originalist America look like? And I think what I found when I studied his individual writings is not only a path through history and understanding and some of the greatest, uh, you know, accomplishments throughout our history as he talks about them and goes through them, but just a real kind of Picture of what an originalist America would look like, and I think, as the publisher says in the sleeve, even the critics, if they gave it an honest read, would be surprised.
0: So, uh, what surprised you as you were writing the book? Because you already had the basic understanding, and not only of the constitutional and textual issues, the history of interpretation, and for that matter, the life and legacy of Clarence Thomas. Um, You had an in-depth knowledge of a lot of these cases, but looking at them in this light. Uh, what surprised you?
1: The, You know, he's been on the bench, I think it's 32 years now. The remarkable consistency from year one to year 32. I yeah. mean, that's hard even for me. I look back at some of my opinions 10 years ago and recognize, boy, I would have written that differently. I would have thought about it differently. But his level of consistency is outstanding. And it's just, I, I, I was candidly very, very shocked at that. Um, The other thing that surprised me is he never and I mentioned this before, he never forgot there were real people involved in these cases. He never forgot it's an actual case or controversy. And while everyone else and, you know, the media and those of us in law schools and even the judges are looking at the legal concepts, every one of these cases, Justice Thomas never forgot the genuinely real person that was in front of him.
0: I was reading an account of modern physics the other day, and it pointed out that you can look at physics uh, as a disjunctive discipline and say, well, you know, it was in this laboratory and that laboratory and another laboratory that this particular advance was made or this theory was uh, originated, perpetuated. But it can be looked at another way, and that is that uh, this is an ongoing conversation, and uh, the conversation's is pushed here and pulled there. Um, it seems to me that that's applicable to this situation, and it leads me to want to ask the question: In your view, where did Clarence Thomas uh, get uh, the influence of originalism? Where, where where did he become an originalist, and and why? I think it was as he went through
1: life, he saw. So to 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 pick up on what you said, Ronald Reagan earlier. Yeah. Um, Ronald Reagan once said. Something to the effect of the worst thing you can ever hear is we're fr- from the government, we're here to help exactly. At- And Justice Thomas kind of learned many of those lessons early on. You know, he grew up, he was, many of your listeners and viewers may know, he grew up, he had a single mom, she was making $10 a week, she couldn't make enough to afford to raise him and his brother. So she gave them to his grandfather, who had a third grade education, but he understood a few fundamental things. One, first and foremost, that education means emancipation. To quote Frederick Douglass, who both Clarence Thomas's grandfather and Clarence Thomas himself are huge fans of and understood that and saved his every penny he had. Someone with a third grade education that would memorize Bible verses because he couldn't really read and um, saved every penny he had to send a young Clarence and his brother to a Catholic school where Clarence Thomas believes that the foundation was laid, his kindergarten through eighth grade education. And so what he saw as he grew up and as he moved north is that the elites, as he perceived, as he calls them the cognoscenti, were only ultimately interested in protecting the elites and many of them populated government and not the real people. And he saw something different in the documents that were written, that the constitution was meant to protect the American people. And so I think in that vein, as he studied more and saw what was going on, he understood pretty quickly that he had an obligation to interpret the document consistent with the original meaning. And I haven't talked to him about this, but I believe he believes the oath itself to this constitution compels him to interpret the document consistent with the meaning and not to his liking and dreams and what he thinks is best for America.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, the classical Marxists, and they certainly weren't always wrong in their diagnoses. And uh, so you take the classical Marxists, including Marx and Engels, they clearly made the argument that the elites will take care of themselves. That's that's, that's, That's the way elites work. They will take care of themselves. Right. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the 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 cognizant, as you say, the elites, they, they it's it's not that they don't like Clarence Thomas, is that they despise him uh, because he won't play that game.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And you see that not only in the book, but in the critiques of Clarence Thomas, you look from the beginning, as I point out in the introduction um Justice Thomas from his earliest days on the court called in uncle Tom, the cruelest justice. Right. I mean, the book proves the opposite is true. It proves he's not an uncle Tom, but rather someone in the black nationalism mold of a Malcolm X or a Thomas soul or Frederick Douglass people right. he admires uh, uh, especially the latter two Frederick Douglass and um, Thomas soul. But It shows that he is someone who's caring and compassionate, not only in real life, but his opinions themselves. And so they just and they show Americans, I think, most importantly, that originalism does not favor the cognoscenti. In fact, the cognoscenti despises originalism and thus they despise Clarence Thomas as their his mess as the messenger for originalism.
0: So uh, you came up with a way of uh, kind of introducing originalism to a a wider audience and also making a larger, let's just say, uh, uh, point of analysis just in terms of how to understand Justice Thomas. And for that matter, uh, by understanding Justice Thomas, understand the Supreme Court and the issues that are at stake. You do have 30 years of jurisprudence here. Uh, You had to choose just a few cases. So why these cases? Because I
1: think they best painted um, Justice Thomas's jurisprudence across a broad cross-section of the jurisprudence itself. So there's plenty of cases I didn't choose that I could have chosen that were also fantastic. But uh, the the, uh, publisher, luckily for me, put a uh, word limit or had a word idea of what they wanted, and I could have written two or three volumes, and what you see is yes. the first, and probably the final volume, if my wife has any say of it, but I think it really accomplished what I wanted to, which is to kind of show a cross-section of his jurisprudence.
0: So kind of walk us through a couple of these uh, that uh, are favorites to you, that, that make the point you're trying to make about how originalism actually functions in the jurisprudence of Justice Thomas.
1: Sure. So I'm going to, what I'll do is I'll walk through the first chapter, first for a reason, and then maybe we can do the second and third together, and I can explain without getting into as much detail. And I think the readers then, or the listeners can read the book and see the rest, but let me, let me start with the first chapter. But your book, I want to
0: say that your book is amazingly uh, uh, well narrated. Uh, so i want to encourage listeners uh y- y- you will want to read these chapters uh because uh uh it's 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 not obtuse legal theory it's uh, it's the narration of important issues and the collision of ideas so forgive my interruption but i just want to say you 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 you've been more effective in this book than i would have thought possible in in accomplishing that but jump into the first chapter
1: yeah. So, um, and the book's called "The People's Justice," and I think it's you'll see why for a reason. Before I get to the first chapter, I'm going to prove my thesis that he not only um, in life, but uh, in his in his cases cares about people. And I'm going to give a story, if I may. And I'm Please. sorry to take this uh, no, aside. That's, that's, that's but why
0: we we want to have this conversation. Go right ahead.
1: So the book includes many stories and includes a couple about him individually interacting with people. I'm going to leave that for the listeners to read about. I think they'll enjoy the church story, the RV stories and the others. But I think what I want to tell is I was at Yale Law School with him. Believe it or not, Yale was celebrating 25 years on the bench for Clarence Thomas. And there I was. They had panel after panel. I was moderating a panel. And afterwards, they had a reception. And we all went to the reception. There were many students, there are many professors who often criticized Clarence Thomas were there just hoping to get a moment with him. And we had about an hour at the reception. I'd say he spent 30 minutes talking to the support staff, meaning the people who were serving the food and others. And then I, I had the, the job, the, the, which I did very poorly, by the way, of escorting him to dinner. And dinner was set time Neil was having a private dinner for him and it was my job to take him to the dinner. And we were 30 minutes late and everyone was looking at me like you had one job and you couldn't get this done get him to the dinner on time. The reason we were 30 minutes late is he insisted on sticking around after everyone left shaking every person's hand who support who served the meal talking to the people who cooked the meal offering to take individual pictures with all of those people each of whom took him up on that and so we got individual pictures with all of these people none of whom were the people that were there to see him but rather the people that served the people that came to see him and that's the type of man he is is and it reflects in this jurisprudence so let me start with the first chapter Suzette Kilo was down on her luck. She had raised five kids. Uh, She was a paramedic and she needed a house. And she always dreamed of having a house with a view, a view of the water. And she found one in New London, Connecticut, in the Fort Trumbull neighborhood. It was perfect. It was in a beautiful blue collar neighborhood, the neighborhood with houses and churches and uh, stores and it was ideal. She thought this is the perfect house with the perfect view of the water. It was really run down, but it was the only house she could afford because she was on a paramedic salary. So she bought it and the real estate agent was embarrassed to sell it to her, didn't want to sell it to her, thought she was should get a nicer house. She was like, nope, this is perfect. It has a view of the water. She put a ton of blood, sweat and tears into that house and took correspondence courses at night so she could become a nurse. So she could afford to rehab the house. And if you look, the book has pictures of it, but she did such a good job and she loved it so much. It was perfect when she was done. She painted it her favorite color, Odessa pink. (laughs) And so it was perfect. She got home from one long day of being on her feet, being a nurse, and she'd go out back and sit on the deck and look out over the water with a glass of wine and think this is heaven. At the same time she did that, trouble was brewing in her town. The city of New London was looking for an occupant of an old mill site down the road from Suzette's neighborhood. And they found what they thought was the perfect partner in Pfizer. And Pfizer wanted to come in and they were willing to come in and rehab the old mill site and develop what they thought was their wonder drug, Viagra, in that site. And so, but they had a deal. For the city, if they were going to come in and rehab the old mill site and move into it with labs and and executives and everything else, the city had to put in a park, an upscale condo building, uh, restaurants, shops, you know, the Lululemons of the world. They wanted all of that. And uh, the city agreed to do it. And the way they were going to do it is Pfizer wanted it by where the mill site was that happened to be this beautiful hundred year old blue collar neighborhood where Suzette lived, not only Suzette, but her neighbors, the dairies had been there a hundred years. They loved the neighborhood so much. Their family had been there that long that every time one of their kids got married, they put a down payment on a house in the neighborhood, by the way, a brilliant concept. If you want to bring your kids home. And so they, they did that. And these people loved it. Well, The real estate agent showed up and they offered Suzette slightly more than she paid for it. After all that blood, sweat and tears, the other thing was this house was perfect. She wasn't going to find a house like this that she could afford anywhere else. And so she wasn't selling. And Suzette actually put a not for sale sign, not a for sale sign, a not for sale sign on her house. Well, the city decided to take the property by eminent domain. An eminent domain, as you know, the Constitution provides in the Fifth Amendment, the government can take your property for public use with just compensation. Well, public use originally meant a sliver of your land to widen the street, another sliver of your land to put in a sidewalk or something like that, or in the most drastic of circumstances, your land to put in a railroad, but something the public would use. So what Scott Bullock for the Institute for Justice argued, the city was uh, argued to the city first. This wasn't a public use. This was a private. You were taking it for a private purpose. Well, the city wasn't having any of it. And on the night before Thanksgiving, they posted notices on the people's doors that the houses were now theirs and they had to evacuate within 30 days. And by the way, in the interim, even if they were paying a mortgage because the city had taken it by eminent domain, the city was demanding that they pay rent for their own houses. And so Scott asked that they not start knocking it down till he could get into court. The city said no. The the court hearing was set the day after the 30 days was to expire when they could begin knocking it down. So Scott and his team of people slept in houses that were being rehabbed where the city would know people weren't living because they were afraid they would knock those down. And so they slept them in them. Some of them had no insulation, so they were sleeping in sleeping bags. They got to court and they fought it all the way up. They lost in part at every turn. It got to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court took the case and Scott was hopeful. The case goes up and at argument, they Scott had run into a problem. He knew it was a problem. It was a case out of the 1950s called Berman, where this, the city of council of the District of Columbia had taken a nice neighborhood. I have a picture of it in a PowerPoint I've created where I do this presentation. And um, this this neighborhood, the most integrated neighborhood in D.C., and the city wanted to take it and turn it over to a private developer to develop apartments and upscale restaurants and things like that near Capitol Hill. And the citizens weren't having any of it. And they were fighting it, and the shop owners filed suit in a case called Berman. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And I want you to notice what a, what is the difference here between living constitutionalism and originalism is in the Berman case, in the 50s, the Supreme Court said, well, the city is taking it for a public purpose. And because the city's telling us this serves the public's purpose, we're going to allow them to take it. They changed the words. The Constitution says public use. They change it to public purpose, which is much broader. Well, Scott's argument was Pfizer's. He didn't ask him to return to the original meaning because he never thought he could get five justices. He argued that Pfizer's purpose was not a public purpose. And Justice Scalia asked an interesting question of the city's lawyer. As he pointed out, Justice Scalia was an effective questioner. And he asked the city's lawyer, if you take from a and give to B, because B pays more taxes. Would that be a public purpose, to get more taxes for the city? And the city's lawyer says, yes. Then Justice Scalia is shocked. He says, you can take from the poor and give to the rich because the rich pay more taxes? And again, the city's lawyer says, yes. This case gets decided by the Supreme Court. The majority, five justices, writes and says that the city can take Suzette and her neighbors houses because it is for a public purpose. The and we they would defer. They say the government knows best what's a public purpose. So we're going to defer to them. The uh, the principal dissents written by Justice O'Connor for four O'Connor, Scalia, Rehnquist and Thomas. And it says, basically, it buys the Institute for Justice's argument, Scott Bullock's, the lawyer for Suzette and her neighbors, and says, no, uh, Pfizer's purpose is not a public purpose. Only Justice Thomas (coughs) argues that the court should return to the original meaning. He points out what we just talked about, about sidewalks and roads, and points out the the horrible history of eminent domain and how it had been used to prey on poor and minority communities. He points out that in the Berman case in the 1950s ninety seven percent of the people that were displaced are black. He accepts the only organization I could find that advocated to return to the original meaning were the was the NAACP. I encourage your listeners to go Google NAACP, Clarence Thomas, champion of minorities and poor. They won't find a single right. article written about that. And then he says a couple of things and I'll, I'll, I'll stop in a minute, but I just want to say what he says. He says a couple of things with the constitutional rights at stake. He points out courts should be vigilant. They don't defer to the government's determination, taking aim at the majority. I'm sorry. He says he ta- he says we don't defer to the government's determination of whether a search of a home is reasonable or whether their suspected murderer needs to be shackled. Then I'm quoting him. Something has gone seriously awry with this court's interpretation of the Constitution, he warned. When those citizens are safe from the government in their homes, the homes themselves are not safe. And then he says he talks about, as I point out, if the majority didn't care about the alteration of the Constitution that the court had undertaken, he would at least make them aware of the painful consequences of their decision. In Justice Thomas's words, allowing the government to take private property, not just for a public use, but for a public purpose, including economic benefits, and now I'm quoting, guarantees that these losses will fall disproportionately on poor communities, such as the people of Fort Trumbull or Washington, D.C., and because these communities are the least politically powerful, they will not be able to stop the indignity of being kicked out of their homes for the sake of vague economic benefit to their city. I went to New London, Connecticut last year. I took a picture of Suzette Kilo's neighborhood. I put it in the book. Pfizer left New London eight years after they came when their wonder drug did not take off as expected. And today, Suzette Kilo's neighborhood, that beautiful blue collar neighborhood is a field, home to cats and rubble.
0: Your Honor, as you uh, tell that story, I think that the question that would come on the part of, of many would, would be, why would it make sense to a majority of the court to empower a local government that way? It, it seems the antithesis of the constitutional logic of America's founding. So. Can can you help us to know how? I, because you've done a couple of things in telling that the story of that case. Uh, for one thing, you 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 underline Justice Thomas's understanding and 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 very sympathetically, and I I am in total agreement. But on what basis would it make sense uh, going all the way from you know the redefinition of public purpose uh, to the present? What would then be an unconstitutional irrigation of power by a municipality? In other words, if if it can take the House, what else could it take? Yeah, and that's that's the question courts
1: ironically today are struggling with. It's really interesting you bring that up because now we're going through that. What else? What can the government do? How far does this power go? Um, The reality is, again, it goes back uh, to... To Justice Scalia, you know, who decides who should make these decisions? And it seems to me the founders made certain decisions that we as judges, at least I believe and Justice Thomas believes, have an obligation to respect. And it's ironic that the critique, again, to go back to what we talked about earlier, now that we've got the flavor of one of the stories in the book, it's um, ironic that uh, the critique is that originalism doesn't protect the little guy. Right. That's the big critique of originalism. Yet what you often find and you find throughout this book (coughs) is they'll often defer to government. Interestingly, and I'm not going to talk about Chapter eight, but Chapter eight, you'll remember, is about gangs and the rights of gang members. And there they didn't defer to government when, again, poor and minority communities were being trampled by gangs. And so. I don't know where that comes from other than living constitutionalism is hard at times to pin down. And when you're changing the words of the Constitution, it's not originals. It's got to be something else. And it seems to me it's living constitutional we're adapting to the times. We want our cities to be nice. We're going to kick out those we
0: don't like or move them to communities
1: we don't want them in. You
0: know, one perpetual temptation on the left is social engineering. And uh, we've seen that, particularly in the, the horrors of the 20th century, uh, which, of course, in the Soviet Union, uh, planned agriculture led to famine, um, as well as in China and the the the, the Cultural Revolution. But you know, uh, on the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, there were several books that uh, went back and traced the jurisprudence of the court's majority, in particular. Uh, what we now have access to are the numerous drafts that were undertaken by Justice Blackman writing the majority opinion, and uh, so I went through every single word. And uh, you know, the Constitution doesn't even enter into the conversation until fairly late. It it, it is clear that the goal of the justice was to try and you know, like Solon, uh, you know, the 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 Greek figure, to uh, do what was wise. Um, how in the world did the court get so derailed from the text of the Constitution that the justice actually, Justice Whiteman, clearly decided, OK, here's the policy that makes sense. Now, how do we present this in a constitutional frame? It seems to me that's exactly backwards.
1: Yeah, and that's not the way an originalist would do it. I pointed that out in Memphis Center. Interestingly, there's a case called Memphis Center where I don't know if you've read my concurrence, but it was a precursor to Dobbs where I pointed out um, why I thought Roe was wrong. I recognized I was bound by it at the time because Dobbs wasn't in place, but I laid out the history, the very history you're talking about, about the means memo and other things and how they got to where they were and how it was all built on a house of cards, for lack of a better way of saying it, and not the constitution itself. And the problem with getting away from the constitution is again, then we are playing God. And what you don't want is courts playing God. You want courts playing judges and judging according to the terms and being bound by it, because otherwise things like what happened to Suzette Kilo and her neighbors happened. And interestingly, as you pointed out, and as I point out, and I would encourage your listeners to read the chapter, not just my description of it, because it's much richer and more descriptive than I can do justice now in a short time. But one of the things um, that I point out in the chapters and Justice Thomas pointed out is these people who they displace can't buy a new home. Why? If you think about today's economy, our houses go up in value if they're going to give us what they say is uh you know, just compensation, that's hardly more than the house is worth yet. You can't at the time and often a lot less than you could sell it for in the open market. So now you're going out and you you're stuck. If you're poor, you don't have a remarkable savings. You live paycheck to paycheck. And these are the people the government is displacing. Right. And right. why are we deferring to government? I think courts, what they said in Berman and what the majority says, here's look, there are elected officials. They know best. We don't want to get involved And they know best in what's involved in their cities. And I would say to courts, well, the founders set certain boundaries. That's why the document itself was written, is to prevent certain things from happening.
0: So um, as you look at the entire question of originalism, I I think of uh, the comment made by Richard Nixon uh, about 1970, when he said, you're all Keynesians now uh you know, referring to uh, Keynesian economics, which is of course largely uh, built upon the idea of government funding and control of the economy, but he was just saying, look that there's no point in making an argument contrary to to Keynesian economics now we're all Keynesians. um so Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the, the late justice, made some comment like, you know we're all originalists now and, and i i i don't I don't know exactly what she meant by it, but it is interesting that even people who aren't originalists they at least have to take originalists' arguments pretty seriously in framing arguments before the court.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I've made the argument in many recent talks that's irritated a lot of law schools that if they're not teaching originalism in law schools, even for to people that disagree with it, um, they are allowing their graduates to commit malpractice because there are enough originalists on the court now that it is important that lawyers understand how to make originalist arguments. And while I don't think all judges are originalists, I think everyone has to tangle with the arguments now that the courts are, and this is a tribute to Ed Meese and Robert Bork and Justice Scalia and others, but are now populated, and Justice Thomas, now populated by originalists and, you're you're most likely in the courts to get an originalist on the panel and they're going to be pressing their arguments. And I'll tell you, it's hard to respond to originalist arguments and just say, no, we're making it up because I don't think the public's going to buy that.
0: Well, what about the law school faculties? I don't get to ask this question so directly um, in most cases. So let me ask you as directly as I can. So if, if you take the direction of America's law schools, um, Are there many originalist professors on the faculty?
1: So if you go to a school like Notre Dame, where I'd say it's got one of the best faculties in America. In fact, I'd make the case Notre Dame, George Mason, some of those schools. But Notre Dame in particular, I'm fond of because I teach there. Uh, Their faculty is remarkable. I, I really there aren't intellectually there's not a better faculty in America. Intellectual diversity, not better in America lot of good originalist professors. Now schools, not all of them, and not as Justice Thomas says, the cognoscenti, but I think a lot of schools are recognizing that they have to hire. Judges are putting pressure on them. Um, I meet with deans regularly and ask them to make good hires of originalist professors. And I think they are starting to do that. But I think Notre Dame, George Mason, some others are have really uh, started to go that route. Alabama's got a good new dean who's I'm confident gonna pay attention to intellectual diversity. I think Florida is starting to pay attention to intellectual diversity. So it's happening. Um, It's not anywhere near where it should be. It's a real problem as we saw at Stanford when people don't have to hear uh, things they don't disagree with and they just shout it down. That's not what lawyers do. It's a real problem when that occurs. And I think these law schools are waking up to that because guess what, when you get to court and you argue in front of a panel of judges, we don't, you know, we care about the facts and the law, not how you're going to feel by our questions or how you're right. going to feel by the law being reflected in an opinion.
0: So in terms of the direction of uh, of the law, uh, I would argue that the originalists, um, had massive impact. And, and I think someone on the left would agree. It was massive impact. I celebrate it. They lament it. Um, but there seems to me that uh, currently there's a new wave of pushback against originalism. Several law professors have written books over the last two years that have been published. Um, so, you know, where's the state of the debate right now uh, among lawyers and, and law professors? It's, it's
1: why I think... The state of the debate amongst lawyers and law professors, I'm going to start with, but I don't want to finish lawyers and law professors is still very slanted away from originalism. I'm not debating that. The judiciary, however, is different. The judiciary, I would say, has not a majority, but a large number of originalists on its court. And then it's why I think books like this are so important. If the American people, what I always say to people is don't only read it yourself Give it or buy it for a friend of yours who's a critic. We've all got one. And who doesn't believe in originalism or is a critic of Justice Thomas, ask him to give it an honest read. I put end notes in here. You can go check my sources. You can check anything about the stories you want. And then sit down with them and say, OK, tell me why originalism is bad. Tell me why he's wrong. I gave it uh, one of the chapters I was writing. I was with a friend who disagrees with me, grew up with him. I gave him the chapter. By the end, he was shocked. He looked up at me and he said, I can't believe it. He said, I thought the court would have come out the other way. He, it, like in Kilo, he would have thought Clarence Thomas's, he's portrayed, would be in favor of taking poor people's houses, taking the middle class's houses. And the others would be in favor of protecting them. And he was shocked how often that happened. He, he pre-ordered the book. He read it. He gave it to his daughter, who's a critic, you know, and it, 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 we got to change minds and hearts one by one. I'm not convinced to answer your ultimate question. We're going to do it quickly in lawyers or in um, faculty. But I am convinced the American people, if they read this book and understand the cases, will start to change
0: their mind. And ideas have consequences, as Richard Weaver famously said. And uh, sometimes those consequences work their way through a system uh, slower than we might like. But, uh, you know, when, when, um, when people get uh, very discouraged by, uh, and I do, frankly, by the leftism that's increasingly powerful and, and frankly, out of control ideologically uh, on America's college campuses, I say, well, you know, we just have to remember that ideas can still win. The right ideas can still win. Um, you know, if you look at economics in the 1920s and compare it to, uh, you know, the Nobel Prize winning economists uh, of the Chicago School in particular, uh, by the 1960s and 70s, you know, th- there's been a fairly conservative revolution in economics. Now, that didn't end the debate, uh, but it's it's still very noteworthy. You know, people who think that the left is always in control and in the driver's seat and that the battle of ideas doesn't matter, you got to deal with uh, the, the economic, uh, revolution that took place in the middle of the 20th century. And I would argue the legal revolution that took place, uh, in the second half of of the 20th century. It gives me hope.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, the people's justice, this book, um, putting the people's justice in front of people, I've been trying to do it in not just the book, but the stories in the book by going around and talking about it, talking to lay people, every chance I get doing shows, uh, And moving through and trying to make them understand it. I think that's where the groundswell is going to come from. There's enough Americans, if you think about it, that what they worry about is putting food on the table, getting their kids through college, going to church on Sunday. And they're not really involved. And I think it's important they read and understand and know what's going on, because there's so many people that just don't they it's like my neighbor who said he couldn't believe I was an originalist because what he assumed what he had read in a snippet right in the newspaper not you know when he read the book it completely changed his mind and I think that's what's important is that's what I'm trying to do with the people's just I hope more will do it I know that others are now writing books in this vein which right. I'm excited to see and so I'm hopeful that we can because as you pointed out so astutely unfortunately, we've got to go past just the academies themselves because that's not doing it. By the time you get to the academies, it's often lost.
0: Judge so far, I'm very thankful for this conversation. I'm uh, I, I want to say a, a word of uh, gratitude for you and your role yourself in the judiciary. Very thankful you're there on the Sixth Circuit. And uh, I am I am very hesitant uh, to argue with your wife. But I will simply say that uh, we need another book. So th- at least, at least that be a, let that be a contrary word of encouragement here, meant in a friendly way.
1: Okay. Well, I will take that message back to her, and hopefully, she'll. I think she'll be. After a few years, it was a lot of yes. taking away time from her and the family to write in on weekends, and then a lot of early mornings before they were up. But when. Right. By the time they were up, my dog and I were grumpy, I think, from writing all morning.
0: Well, uh, very thankful for this conversation. Uh, and Judge Amul Thapar, thank you for joining me today for thinking in public. Well,
1: thank you very much. Have a wonderful day.
0: Many thanks to my guest, Judge Amul Thapar, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 185 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking.